Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to Janine Craybill, who is the author of Unconventional, Partisan, and Polarizing Rhetoric, How the 2016 Election Shaped the Way Candidates Strategize, Engage, and Communicate. Uh, the book is recently available, published by Lexington Books. Janine, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. Uh, it's it's so nice to um, have read your book, uh, read the book with so many uh, great authors in it. Uh, you've written some of the chapters. Others have written some of the chapters, and it's, uh, it's a pleasure to um, have you on. Uh, maybe you can just start us out by telling us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background. Sure. Uh, well, I am an assistant professor of political science uh, at California State University, Bakersfield. I'm also the pre-law advisor for the department. Uh, I graduated um, from Claremont Graduate University in 2015 and then came to Bakersfield. And my main area of study is religion and politics. And then I also uh, study and teach in regards to government institutions, specifically the presidency and the Supreme Court. Great, great. Apropos very much for the book that you have put together. I'm always interested in, in edited volumes, how the, the book started, how you found the authors, what, uh, what brought them this group together. Would you talk a little bit about this um, before we get to the actual substance of the, the book, uh, how, you, how you put the book together? Yes. So the 2016 election and primary season Obviously, there was this sense, I think, among many of us in academia and also the public that the rhetoric of uh, of this process uh, felt different. Uh, it, it felt strong. At times, it felt unusual uh, and divisive. And looking at other scholarship that has studied uh, political communication uh, from elites and its influence on public opinion, I started to think to myself, well, I wonder if you know, we can unpack this a little differently if if now, especially with new forms of social media, there's something different going on with political communication. And how is that now um, engaging a very pluralistic uh, group of voters since the 2016 election was the most pluralistic group of an electorate that we had ever had? And so I started to look into other uh, scholars who had done some work on political rhetoric or people that I had known from either conferences or uh, even my own uh, uh, graduate study program and seeing if they were noticing uh, some of these these same things, some of these same feelings myself or others in the public were having. And so that brought together a a series of ideas in forms of, well, how are we going to study the various language and rhetoric that was employed during the 2016 election? And how are we going to look at how it impacted the way that those candidates present themselves, you know, as an outsider versus an insider, the tone that they are going to be delivering their campaign message? 
How is it going to impact uh, voters, whether that's, you know, men versus uh, women or uh, uh, Latinos versus African-Americans? How is it going to touch on important issues such as religion, climate change? And so with that, uh, this idea for the prospectus started to take shape and we put together uh, the volume to try to look at the language and political rhetoric of the election in a multifaceted way with that with that sense of that we knew that that language in this regard can be used as an electoral device and weapon you describe a little bit of this but i wonder if you can sort of uh, put this put put uh, the uh, some um, uh, guardrails around this uh, which is uh, when when does uh, the work begin and and when does it end what are the what are the things that are studied by various people in the chapters? Um, how early and, and how late are we talking about? And what are the kinds of things uh, that people focus on? What what types of communication? Sure. Well, the first substantive uh, chapter is really kind of where I would start to put that guardrail. And that's by uh, Hoffman, uh, Lemaire, and Howard. And they start off discussing the Iowa primary since it is the the, the, the first uh, of the uh, caucuses and the primaries. And so the book essentially starts the first couple of chapters looking at how it was that candidates presented themselves in the primaries. And then it starts to work towards actual coverage of the candidates in the election. Uh, and then the last several chapters uh, analyze uh, Donald Trump, uh, more specifically, also Hillary Clinton, but more so Donald Trump on on Twitter through Election Day. And so the range or scope of the book starts with the primaries and goes through uh, November of, of the 2016 election. Now, you've co-authored uh, one of the chapters uh, in the book uh, on the, quote, God strategy. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what a God strategy is and how it was employed in 2016. Sure. Well, I, we took theoretically uh, or were influenced theoretically by Domkey and Co.'s work on the God strategy. So that was in some ways our theoretical guide. And the idea with the God strategy per Domkey and Co., who coined this, is the idea that politicians carefully use religious language to connect with faith-based voters and they utilize religious language in rhetoric in a way that is an electoral strategy and can be a weapon. And there's four main categories that they say that the God strategy can be employed. Uh, political preach, you no know, directly speaking the language of the faithful the second would be God and country. So fusing, you know, uh, religious beliefs and religious rhetoric with patriotism. Uh, the third acts of communion, which is overtures to uh, religious groups, engaging religious groups, even pilgrimages, going to, you know, the Faith and Freedom Caucus. Or in 1992, they talk about how uh, Bill Clinton went to Notre Dame. And then the last morality uh, politics, they argue this trumpeting of uh, bellwether kind of issues, morality politics. And so being that we were also looking at emerging platforms of where political discourse was taking place and how, you know, and over the last 10 years, you know, to, in some ways, some argue to have a, you know, a successful com campaign, you have to be on media, you have to be on Twitter as a candidate. So we looked at that platform. And we looked at from the time that 
Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump both respectively announced their candidacies through election day. And we used a very similar uh, word list that Domkey and Co. did. And we essentially pulled tweets utilizing uh, these set of religious language. And then we conducted a content analysis to see which of these forms of the God strategies I just discussed, those four, was employed the most. And we uh, found that acts of communion were employed by uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump the most, more so Hillary Clinton, but they used those acts of communion in very different ways. So Hillary Clinton really used those acts of communion to engage uh, underrepresented religious groups, particularly Muslims. And Donald Trump uh, utilized those to really engage the evangelical community. What's interesting, though, is that Donald Trump also did talk about uh, Muslims and, and Islam quite a bit, but he didn't use it for one, you know, in the capacity or context of the traditional four characteristics of the God strategy, which we argue towards the end of the chapter may be signaling a new God strategy, uh, you know, what we call divisiveness and fear. And that's something for future research we're hoping to, to tease out. In addition to the chapter you write, uh, several of the other chapters of the book are, are about identity. Uh, I wonder what, what you learned as the editor of this volume about gender and race and ethnicity uh, from the research in this book. Uh, you know, quite, quite a bit. And I think that that's a, that's a great way to frame it because I think being an editor on a project like this, one of the one of the fun and, and really neat and stimulating things is how much you learn from the contributors. Uh, and so there were several things. One is the chapter by Carrie Scully. She looks at over 8,000 um, articles. Uh, it's the chapter titled, uh, you know, uh, essentially, uh, Why Aren't You Smiling? And she looks at over 8,000 articles and their coverage on the candidates. And she showcases essentially, and her findings demonstrate that, you know, women still receive a bias in coverage when it comes to mainstream uh, newspaper articles, that maybe that bias isn't as overt um, as we've seen in, in prior times, but that it still exists. And one of the main biases she found was that female candidates, their viability uh, really gets uh, challenged. And this is done by not referring to them in their professional capacity, uh, but more so as their their married capacity. So for example, someone like Hillary Clinton wasn't referred to nearly as much as Secretary Clinton as she was uh, referred to as Mrs. Clinton or spoken about also in the context of her husband, Bill Clinton. Uh, and then other things too, very similarly with Carly Fiorina. And so I felt that that was Interesting because that's still much of a debate that's happening in terms of gender bias with candidates in media coverage. Another thing that I thought was very interesting in uh, Dr. Ivy Cargyle's uh, chapter, she looks at how it is that Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, not being a descriptive represent representative of African American females or Latinas really became a representative for them when it came to important issues such as reproductive rights or immigration. And that sense, like, for example, specifically looking more at Latinas, the immigration issue was fairly salient, uh, that, that, that her position with them resonated. Um, so various things like that, I, I thought were 
interesting because they demonstrated that even though there there wasn't a woman of color that was uh, the candidate, that Hillary Clinton spoke to those two groups of women uh, more so than white females. And I thought unpacking those nuances was very interesting. If if rhetoric uh, is significant, uh, there must be a relationship to outcomes uh, and and voting. I, I wonder if you talk a little bit about how the the kind of rhetoric and the kind of communication that defined 2016 was related to uh, who won and who lost and and who voted and who didn't vote. Well, I th- I think going back, for example, to our discussion on the God strategy. Uh, one of the things that was difficult was there wasn't one continuous uh, or uniform poll that captured public opinion's feelings um, about issues like terrorism. But from our analysis, uh, you know, it's suggestive, but we were able to suggest that, you know, when there were, for example, terrorist attacks and Donald Trump took to Twitter and spoke about Muslims or Islam in a radical or extreme way and then called out Barack Obama for not calling it what he felt it was Islamic terrorism or not or Hillary Clinton not calling it by that name, that you did see spikes in public opinion polls uh, among the American people showing that they had concern um, about issues of security, about issues of terrorism. And I think that we could start to see a bit of a pattern with some of the analysis that that divisiveness and fearful rhetoric did resonate uh, with groups of the American electorate. I also think, like, for example, going back to uh, uh, Ivy Cargyle's uh, chapter on representation in Hillary Clinton, you know, we know that, you know, over 90 percent of African-American female voters voted for Hillary Clinton and almost 70 percent of Latina voters voted for Hillary Clinton. And I think her rhetoric and her message resonated more with them and was more salient with them uh, than uh, other candidates were. And so I think that those types of instances is where we could see that rhetoric is impactful. It can engage and influence uh, the electorate in the sense of how they're feeling about particular issues and who they think is going to to represent their interests best. Now, at the start of our conversation, what you suggested was what was that sort of some of the motivation to put this book together was how uh, unusual or different uh, 2016 felt than in previous years. Now, some of what you've said so far sounds like what has happened in the past, especially related to issues of uh, gender and race and ethnicity. I wonder if you could maybe summarize what what the difference was um, or or is is it a difference of 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 magnitude or of medium um, where would you point to in in the the book uh, to to show the real difference that's we saw in 2016 from 2008 and, and 2004 to our earlier elections sure I think that you know I, th- I think that our elections uh, here in in the United States, always seem divisive. And you hear a lot of rhetoric of, of people suggesting that this is one of, you know, when an election comes around, that this is the most negative or this is the most ugly. And so we do see a, a pattern where, you know, you know, after elections people or during the course of them, people seem to say that. But I think that particularly because we had such a stark difference of this notion of an, of 
you know, establishment candidates versus non-establishment candidates and outsiders versus insiders, uh, that that really seemed at times to be at center stage. And that created a different feel of the election. And the Hoffmeyer uh, or the Hoffman chapter uh, discusses that and, you know, shows that, you know, in at least in Iowa, that you know, voters in that primary were essentially primed for an outsider candidate. And they essentially even look at, you know, traditional uh, caucus goers that engage, um, you know, more regularly in in that uh, primary process uh, were more likely to vote for uh, candidates that presented themselves as an outsider candidate. And I think that that even, you know, flows in over into the rhetoric, for example, that we saw candidates like Donald Trump use, uh, you know, not necessarily employing, uh, you know, traditional means of how we would engage other groups. So, for example, uh, how he was uh, in regards to his uh, rhetoric towards uh, Muslims, making sure that he was distancing himself from how Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama saying he's calling it like it is, saying it like it is. And I think that it was just a more heightened set of difference. I think that because we had not seen a candidate like him before, it it permeated the entire tone of the election. And I think the various chapters in the volume capture that. And then I also think though, that it led to the question, well, then is he Donald Trump with his tone and with his, the way that he's communicating on Twitter, which we haven't really seen a presidential candidate do and now president do, is that leading the media coverage And that last chapter by uh, Chris Hayes uh, discusses some mixed findings there. So I still think that, you know, a year passed into the election, there's still more more questions and future research to be developing from where we've started. Now, with with the future in mind, I wonder if you could look ahead and do some prognostication for us. If you you look ahead to 2020, uh, do you think that the 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 most interesting uh, rhetoric, uh, communications issue is going to be related to issues of tone or issues of technology? Is is Twitter, Facebook going to be uh, dominant like in 2016? Or will we be uh, considering uh, other medium uh, as, as central to the discussion of, of tone and communication? So uh, take, us, take us into the future uh, for a bit. Sure. I think going into the 2020 election, I still think that social media will be a major platform that candidates present themselves um, and even use to take out their opponents. And that, you know, that's another way that we're starting to see um, social media be used and going back to, you know, what it was that made this uh, election seem unusual is I think that also seeing Twitter being used, you know, as a weapon or social media being used as a weapon to take other candidates out just seemed more pronounced since the platform, you know, is still, you know, relatively new in some regard. It's only a little over a decade old. So I think going into, you know, drawing on that and going into the future, I think social media presence uh, in politics um, is is still here in in the capacity that we see it for a little while. I think, though, that that the uh, electorate is going to be deciding, though, if they like this style of of rhetoric. Um, You know, if if some of these kind of... uh, more untraditional uh, forms of communication uh, are are resonating with them or if they're fatigued by them. Um, I also think, though, too, and um, 
you know, the Holman chapter discusses this, that some of these forms of uh, communication, you know, like email and social media, they unfortunately still leave people out on the sidelines, uh, women, uh, uh, people on the lower socioeconomic runs. So I think that candidates also have to strategize various ways that they engage uh, the electorate. And so I think going into the future, you'll still see a social media presence most definitely, but I think it'll be interesting to see how the American people uh, you know, re- respond if uh, this same tone that we saw in the 2016 election will be effective, if people will still be trying to present themselves as outsiders versus insiders, or if now we'll draw more people who are candidates who are presenting themselves as having experience, if, you know, it'll, if it'll come back and swing the other way again. Yeah, the, the book again is Unconventional, Partisan, and Polarizing Rhetoric, How the 2016 Election Shaped the Way Candidates Strategize, Engage, and Communicate. Uh, the book is edited by uh, uh, who you've been hearing from, Janine Craybill, and published by Lexington Books. Uh, Janine, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me.